0: And so, how do I do that? And in the military, we have processes and procedures, protocols, all through basic training, all through leadership training that continues throughout your career, by the way, regardless of your rank, regardless of your rank, because we want leaders at every level. That's what we actually need in corporate America, too. We just don't
1: focus that way. Welcome to the Disruptive Innovators Champions of Digital Business podcast Diving into their personal backstory, career, their current role, trends they've been seeing, and their vision for the future, personally, professionally, and otherwise. This podcast is made for people who are seeing how quickly the digital business landscape is evolving. Those who recognize that it takes a village of trusted advisors to navigate this ever-changing terrain. People who enjoy listening to high-level discussions surrounding what it means to be a leader real-world examples of challenges faced, and industry-specific strategies leveraged to create exceptional business outcomes. This episode is brought to you by Disruptive Innovations, a leading tech consulting firm that helps enterprise
0: organizations with their IT strategy, process optimization, and workflow improvement. Contact them and find out more at disruptiveinnovations.net.
1: Good morning, friends. David Wright here, and I am your host of the Disruptive Innovators Champions of Digital Business podcast. And this morning, I am lucky enough to be joined by Walt Carter. Walt, how's it going? It's going great, David. How are you today, buddy? I am really, really good. Very grateful and excited to have you on. Walt, for those of our listeners who may not know, can you tell everyone a little bit about your current role? Sure, David. I am very proud to be
0: the Chief Digital Officer and CIO at Homestar Financial Court. We're a residential mortgage company operating currently in 42 states and growing across the nation. I've been there for about five and a half years now and completed my third digital transformation all within the last 12 years at three different mortgage companies. All things digital, all things
1: infrastructure, all things data. Those kind of roll up to me right now. Interested in diving a little bit deeper into that. And I know you're an accomplished author as well. So I'm excited to talk more about your book. But to start the episode, we'd just like to ask, what's one piece of actionable advice you might look to just offer our listeners to start out?
0: The first piece from a leader's perspective took me the longest to really get a hold of and master. And it's really about anger and fear. When you're leading, the folks underneath are looking for predictability, they're looking for stability, and probably more than anything else, they're looking for safety. And so as a leader, if you're going to be a hot reactor instead of a cold creator, you just really need to think your way through that because you know that anger is a fear response, right? That's typically, as we grow up, we start to learn and control the emotions that are there for our guidance. They're not there for us to share with everybody else. They're really there to guide us. And that was a hard lesson for me. It took me several years to really get control there. And then once I did, everything fell into place pretty quickly going, yeah, I just need to think about why am I responding this way? What expectation did I have that's not being met? Why is that anchored in something that is a fear of mine that's causing me to have this anger response? So instead of reflexively responding in anger, I've learned that I just need to really just listen hard and then look inward and go, okay, what is it here that this is really telling me? Then again, back to creative mode. How do we resolve this? How do we move past this? Is there an opportunity in this? That's another feature of really understanding and having this kind of control through your dashboard. And your emotional responses really are a dashboard for you. But the other corollary to that is Your emotional responses are a key dashboard for your people that you're trying to lead or influence. And if you are the opposite of predictable, stable, safe, then you're creating a mess for yourself as a
1: leader. 100%. Took me a long time to soak up the lessons that you're getting into as well. A lot of bumps and bruises along the way. But emotional intelligence, as I would refer to it as a leader, is just so crucial and took a lot of work reflective work and work with trusted partners in order to hold up that mirror so that I could identify my fear and for me that there's kind of fears that are not based in reality and then understandable fear because usually my unreasonable fears are fears of losing what i have or not getting what i think i need for me those fears i've largely shed with meditation and Just an understanding that, like, I'm okay. Everything's okay. Gratitude is a great kind of deflector of that being of service. Anyway, I'm kind of going off on a tangent here. I'm really excited to dive a little deeper into this. And, Walt, I'm really interested to learn more about how you started out. Because obviously, like you mentioned, you've gone through three large scale digital transformations of financial institutions. You've written a book. How did you start out and how did you get to the place that you're at today? I started out, I
0: guess I would say it this way, you know, I got an undergraduate degree in physics. I started writing software programs as a physicist, trying to do statistical analysis on the experiments that we were running in the labs, ultimately built a computer simulation of a nuclear particle accelerator for my undergraduate thesis. And that was a fun project. I got to go to Triangle University's nuclear labs hang out with a bunch of PhD candidates that were actually running experiments in the accelerator there, gathering up their empirical results, and then trying to write algorithms that would define at the subatomic level, this is what Brownian motion will occur if you shoot this particle down the accelerator at this acceleration, and it collides with this kind of metal foil at the end, this is what you'll expect subatomically, right? You know, it's pool ball scattering. Can you predict that at a subatomic level? So then you take that math and you go write code to try to bring that math to life so that if you input some of those variables, you get an output that replicates to a large extent what those empirical results in the lab would be. And it turned out it wasn't as simple or as lightweight as my advisors had suggested it might be. And I was more or less desperate there at the end, hoping that this thing would work so I could get a passing grade and graduate on time. So it wasn't like I'm all that in a bag of chips. I am really proud to say that when I was a freshman, I think there were about 90 of us that declared at this small college in North Carolina, Guilford College, that we were going to be physics majors. And when we graduated four years later, there were only five of us left standing. And I probably had the lowest GPA of the five, but I got out on time. And then I went to work, After that, I went into the U.S. Air Force, and I was basically a maintenance officer on Minuteman III ICBM, so I'm a hard-carrying rocket scientist that's actually worked on real rockets. Did that for a few years, and that ties back to where we started, which is when you're working on nuclear weapon systems, it changes the way you think about stress and your reactions. And that's where I first started thinking about what does it mean to really lead in a high-stress environment? And there is no higher stress environment, by the way, than trying to lead a digital transformation. And again, you've got so much that it's just inherent fear there. A lot of people going, I don't understand this. I don't know why we're doing this. I'm afraid that digital transformation means I lose my job at the end of the rainbow. I'm very afraid. Like right now, everybody's scared to death of the AI as a leading cause of job loss. We've got 200,000 people that are going to be cut because we think we can replace them with AI. And I'm like, yeah, you guys probably need to think about the language you're using there. And when you get right into the rest of my career, it was really about me learning that there is no real technical problem that we can't resolve. If you give me enough time and enough money... We'll put a man on Mars right on the spot, right by the face there. And I've never had projects that failed because of insurmountable technical difficulties. But I've had numerous projects fail over the years because I couldn't get the executives team aligned and then keep them tuned. Those are specific language elements that I use because they're pretty descriptive of what actually happens in groups. And then a few years ago, I decided to write that book, We Can't Stay Here, because I see the pace of change increasing in my lifetime. It's certainly not decreasing. You've got more people working on more cool stuff around the world right now than at any other time in our lifetime. And so change is coming. And there's stuff emerging on the shelf every day that might benefit your business or your organization or your people. And so what are you doing to stay in front of that? If you think that you can just rest on your laurels, you'll be overcome by the actual disruptors in the marketplace. Because there are people looking at your supply chain, your value chain right now, going, I think I can disrupt that with some of this new cool stuff that's been developed in the labs. So you can't just be sitting there going, dopey dough, I hope I make it to retirement. You've got to be thinking about, okay, how do we absorb that? And then how do we, as an organization of people working together, fight our fear fight our emotional responses and get to the change that creates long-term stability and growth for us there's a lot more of an art than there is a science to that
1: 100% agree it's funny that you mentioned that too because by trade i would refer to myself as an executive a technologist but nowadays i spend more time at the epicenter of technology operations the executive team just as a catalyst of change management and really that leader. I love, you referred to it as the calm creator, was it? I love that because that's really what it is. Kind of me putting my arm around folks, making them feel heard, making sure that their viewpoints are integrated into the strategy in so much as they can be, and then pushing things along. I love what you mentioned about the keeping the executive team in tune or tuning the executive team. I think that's so crucial as well. Great insights. Well, along the way, what would you say was one of the most important things that you learned and what was life like before learning it and after learning it?
0: I had a great leader a few years back when I was doing a big project and I wound up winning a really big award for leading that project. It was the largest commercial project that we had at that consultancy. But along the way, one of the guys that was really the big guy on the project took me aside and he said, I need to chat with you about some things that are potentially holding you back. And I'm like, really, what would that be, Doug? And he said, people see you coming and you're a big guy and it looks like you might've played football in the past. And they going, oh, it's a big, dumb football player. And then they hear you speak and they're like, oh, he's not dumb. He's actually not dumb at all. I think we like this guy, right? But he said, but then he said, somehow or another, somebody gets crosswise of you. And then you flay them alive with their own words because you've got this incredible memory. People really don't like that. It makes them feel uncomfortable because you're bigger, stronger, faster, and smarter than they are. And now they think you don't like them. And right. you're going to need to really soften your approach in working with people in order to get these kind of projects done. And I'll be honest with you. Yeah. I reacted very negatively to this criticism because I'm thinking, hey, I'm a big, nice guy. If they would just quit pissing me off, this is not me picking fights. This is them. And yet after emulsifying, I guess, in that, I was like, I think he's got a good point. I really do need to think differently about that. That's actually the pivot point in my career, probably 25 years ago, where I started really thinking harder about the people side of the equation. And less about the technology, up to that point, I had been the guy that you know, oh yeah, we need to rewrite our methodology so that we maintain our certifications on it. Let's get Walt. he's a smart guy. he can figure out how to walk that tight line. Oh, we've got a real big problem with building out a test environment for every kind of code known demand for y two k. Let's get Walt. he can do that. He's a rocket scientist, and so early, it was really about the tech, right, and twenty five years on the other side of that, it's been all about the people. And then back to the tuning. You know, I grew up playing in bands and playing musical instruments. I thought everybody did when I was a kid. Wrong about that. But it turned out that whenever you get a group of musicians together, the first thing you do is define a note that we can all tune to. And then you play. And as you play, you get out of tune. And so periodically, you retune. And it doesn't matter whether you're playing stringed instruments or brass instruments or horns or whatever, right? You've got to stay in tune if you're going to play together and not create discordance and obnoxious sounds. And so thinking about that and applying that to people and thinking about people as tribes or squads or herds, there's a lot of different words that you can use, but ultimately you have to understand that as soon as you introduce another person into an environment you've changed the dynamic and now you're in a team sports dynamic not an individual contributor dynamic and people respond very differently as the teams or squads build there becomes an inherent culture and that comes with the baggage and the mindsets and the filters that each member of that team brings to the table and a lot of times Those cultures evolve organically, let's say, versus evolving with intentionality. And what I mean by that is by being defined and potentially driven in a particular direction by the leader. And so consequently, I started really looking hard at those kinds of things going, okay, how do I get smarter about this team dynamic, herd dynamic? Where do I find that kind of information about how to get people aligned? Because that turns out to be way harder than you might think. That just getting aligned, getting them to that first note that we all agree on is a big deal. And then periodically coming back and going, okay, remember we all aligned on this? Remember we said that? This is what we're going to do. This is why we're doing it. And this is how we're going to know when we're done. If you just keep those three things in mind all the way through and reinforce them continuously, that's what I mean by tuning, right? That's really the leader's job. And it feels like you're a broken record after a while. And you think, yeah, I'm sure they got it by now. I mean, we've been doing this for three months or six months, and they've heard me say this over and over again. It turns out that's not true. You need to say it continuously through the effort because people will squirrel off and go do their own thing if they're not constantly being tuned to what they had originally agreed with. The other thing that I'm still working on is how do I get this? to be your idea. And there's a lot of language out there on the internet about collaboration, but I'm still a believer that we don't do that very well. Collaboration is something it's a holy grail. Individual contributors, we can line those up, give them tasks and knock out work, but whenever we actually need to work together to solve problems, that becomes a knot for us. The more you have a defined culture that is intentional, the better those problem solvers are at moving through the group task. That's been my finding. And the less intentional that culture is for that group of collaborative problem solvers, the more likely you are to derail at that point because they won't be able to align in tune for themselves to be able to get to the right solution. That's a big challenge. That's why I think you see so many of these digital transformations failing today, depending on who you talk to. It's 70% or 85%, I think, if you go to the Accenture guys. But bottom line is that's an abysmal success rate. And then for the 30% that do come across the line, usually it's with a much reduced scope from what was originally intended, much like a lot of our IT projects over the years, right? When you go back in time, you think about those big ERP implementations or CRM implementations, those were death marches. The ultimate death march to me is a data warehouse project. Oh, my God, we're never going to be done.
1: You said so much good stuff there. I'm trying to think of where to start. First thing, when you're talking about the feedback that you had gotten, I've been in similar situations and sometimes it's hard to hear that feedback, especially from someone I respect and trust. But what I've come to realize is people's perception of me is reality it's their reality, right? So I might be living in my bubble or whatever, but if that's what I'm projecting, that's what it is, no matter what I might think it is. So I've had to learn, like you did, to accept that and internalize that. And I had a great piece about a client a few years back about how I didn't meet them where they were at. Like I was talking at this level of like advanced kind of digital transformation, yada, 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 and they needed me down here. I was trying to pull them up, but I really just needed to get back to basics and really, I don't want to say spoon feed it, but that was what was required. And I actually lost out on the opportunity because I couldn't see that. They didn't tell me I had to have been aware enough to get there.
0: I said recently at a CIO conference that digital transformation is like beauty. It's in the eye of the beholder and it's organizationally context dependent. So digital transformation in the mortgage industry may be different from digital transformation in the insurance industry, but I can guarantee you that digital transformation is wildly different at each organization because you've got to really think about what is it that we're talking about in the abstract here for this unique context, this company, these people, what is that really going to translate to them? And what I've found is the same thing that I think you just ran into, which is If you're way up here in the abstraction layers, it loses so much meaning that people can't connect to it. You've got to bring it down at least to a level where they can go, oh, I see how that affects me. Oh, I understand what that means for our organization. Oh, I understand what that means for my people. I understand what that means for my customers. Most of the transformation efforts that I'm reading about, and certainly the ones I've participated in, are really all about creating new accesses to data. I need data in order to better understand my customers, to better predict what they're going to want, when they're going to want it, how they're going to want it served to them. And so the more data I can acquire from the more channels I can build, the better that customer awareness is going to be. That's the perception. And then you start extending into the other parts of the quadrants, which is, what about my employees? Let's think about the employees. What else could I gather from a data perspective that would help me have? a richer, more rewarding employee engagement? If I take good care of my employees, they'll take good care of my customers. What tools do I need to provide to them? And then organizationally, you think about what is the management team, the CEO and the executives above the board of directors, right? What do they need to get out of digital transformation? Operationally, what does that mean? Once we take this vision and we start to operationalize it, how do we do that? What is digitalization digitization, right? Different words, very close, same route, but ultimately it's all about data, right? We've got to get more data in and then oh, i got to be able to analyze that data and i got to be able to visualize that data. And the best tools I've seen so far are the ones that let me make that data analysis actionable on contact or on presentation. And those are huge. But if you don't think your way all the way through to that presentation layer of digital transformation, Again, the Feynman principle, right? You got to teach this like you're teaching a five-year-old. If you can't explain it to the five-year-old successfully, it's because you don't understand it well enough. And a lot of times what we don't understand coming in from the outside and even as an internal leader, a lot of times we don't understand the reality on the ground well enough. The context is what really kills us, right? Because we're solutioning up here instead of down
1: where the rubber meets the road. I love that you brought that up because nowadays we'll actually do rounds and we'll go to do the site visits and we'll talk to those people and we'll actually talk to consumers as well because we want that consumer experience to ultimately drive whatever the digital transformation is consumer, both the customer and consumer, the employee. I agree with that. And one other thing that I wanted to bring up before I I forget was you mentioned earlier Helping the team to feel like it's their idea right or that's what I heard and I'm dealing with three or four different situations right now at one in particular that comes to mind where it is holding everyone hostage actually like they have this operational team this innovation team and then it innovation this whole team business unit was built to help drive innovation and think creatively about how they can do things differently and explore different technology solutions and so on. And they'll bring things to IT and IT will be like, oh, we can't do that because of X, Y, Z, or, oh, that's going to take three years or, oh, blah, 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 blah. And I mean, granted, like IT is keeping the lights on, they have a fairly clunky infrastructure. So I get it. But at the same time, like they don't have the prowess in order to call BS really. And yeah, it's a whole situation right now. So The tenants that you're speaking of and getting everyone on the same page, tuning, helping IT, because like our job really is going to be getting with IT, really understanding where they're at, making sure they don't see us as an outsider, right? So how are we kind of integrating into their environment and letting them know, okay. Yes, we're a consultant, but we can get in the weeds with you and like we can hang, right? Like we're not just a suit. And then past that, help me understand why we can't do this. Help me understand instead of being combative, trying to really massage it so we can say, what if we did look at this, right? And then encouraging them to using the challenges that they're facing and the aspirations that they have. How can I get them to get behind something? And really, because ultimately, my experience has shown that nine times out of 10, the different business units across a company have the same vision, like they really do, at least at its core. And it's my job to translate it into a language that everybody can get behind and appreciate. That just brings that to mind for me in this moment.
0: The real challenge there is you've got what you described as three different parts of the group that don't feel as connected as they need to. And most likely there's an incentives alignment problem there. And then you think about just natively, you know, in as a guy who's been simultaneously the chief marketing officer and the chief information officer at two other companies, people ask me all the time, well, Walt, how do you deal with that internally? It looks like you're in conflict with yourself all the time. I'm like, no, I'm not. I just understand that marketing needs data. They need quick, responsive data to understand whether the campaigns are working or not and what they need to move to. IT is looking to protect the enterprise by eliminating as much as possible unmanaged change. So I don't want to run too fast into the market and do things willy-nilly. I want to do everything under control so that I have good change management all the way through. If the marketing guys understand that need from the IT team and the IT teams understands the need of the marketers for, I got to get a feedback loop out there as quick as I can, then now all of a sudden we can work together for the benefit of the company and we can share a vision of, oh, yeah, we're going to do that and we're going to go as fast as we can go, but we're going to do it under control so that we don't have any unmanaged change that happens that disrupts everybody else. And so now we've got a shared model as opposed to I've got a model in IT that's restrictive I, and intentionally I want to slow things down. So I make sure I understand it and I document it as I go versus innovators who are going, no, 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 we got to get this stuff off the shelf and into production. A good friend of mine, Bob Barnado, over at NCR recently you know, said, well, it's usually the security guys and the guys in compliance that put the no in innovation. That's a good phrase. I like that. Putting the no in innovation. And you don't want to be those IT guys that are putting the no in innovation. But a lot of times you feel like, as an IT guy, yeah, I don't understand this well enough. We're not going to be able to move that fast. We're going to have to take some time and deliberate here about the best way to do this, the best tool set to use. We can't just spin on a dime, right? That's not the way IT is wired. IT is wired in just the opposite way, right? So if you understand that about IT organizations, now you can start to build Those bridges and that connective tissue that you need to with the innovators and with the LOBs or the lines of business that are out there so that you can get everybody to a shared vision, then do that alignment on the incentives, the consensus on the three main questions. What is it that we're doing? Why are we doing it? And how are we going to know we're done? And move through that. And this is the part that sucks. And you're running into that part, which is. That takes a lot of personal time and a lot of individual time because you got to work it out and negotiate that the hard way with a lot of people. And sometimes you can do it in a room with a lot of people together, but most of the time that doesn't work. So you got to have these individual conversations and you got to build that set of relationships and that consensus. And that takes time. If you understand that, though, you do that early in the life cycle of the project, you build nice, tight teams with shared visions and alignment, and now you can run once you're actually into the actual game of creating. And then that's another key point, by the way. There's a great book called The Four Disciplines of Execution by Hewling and McChesney and Covey that I think is one of the best because they say you've you got to make this a winnable game, and mm. you got to make sure that every player on the stakeholder teams that are contributing value to your effort, that they know it's a winnable game. It's got to be a winnable game. You got to make it a winnable game. And if you do that, you win most of the time. And I think they are right on the money with that.
1: Well, I want to get into your current role before we do. I mean, you just brought up what sounds like a great book. I like to pause and ask, favorite book all time or that you've read recently, perhaps in addition to the one that you just mentioned?
0: Favorite book of all time is when it comes to the leadership stuff, it's the Leadership Challenge by Kuzes and Posner. It's an oldie, but a goodie. It basically, that was the one that unlocked the whole heart relationship. It's not a mind thing, it's a heart thing. And it's a team thing. It's not a logic thing. You're never going to rationalize your way into project success. What you're going to have to do is lead people into an inspirational mode where they can actually go the extra mile several times if necessary to get that thing all the way across the line. And if you don't understand that this is a people game, Courage, heart, those kinds of things, right? Inspiration, right? That's a key word, right? If you're not capable of finding it in yourself to become an inspirational leader, don't declare yourself the leader and don't take the job. You've got to find a way to get to the hearts of your people in a way that gets them to rally to move through the stuff that sucks. And there's always stuff that sucks. In the military, we have a phrase for that. It's called embrace the suck. And because it's not going to do you any good to whine and bitch about it. You just got to hug it close and get through it as fast as you can. The, another, as uh, a country song says, "If you're going through hell, don't stop. Keep on going." I was
1: just thinking about the quote blocks we do for the podcast, and I'm like, I hope they pull "embrace the suck." That would be an awesome one.
0: It turns out that on digital transformation, that's really the meat of it, right there. Is it? There are going to be a lots of parts of this thing that suck, and you're just going to have to embrace that suck and keep moving. Or just to declare failure and be one of the 70 to 85% that don't make it through. But if you really get that leadership challenge, that Cousins and Bosner kind of method and message, it's not that complicated. We've been leading people in the military for years and years. And we use all kinds of tools that I don't see in corporate America. We use music. We use trumpets. We use horns. We use drums. We use Jody calls. We sing to each other while we're embracing this up. I don't know. Right. I've been told that kind of stuff. When you think about how humans work as teams and you start to deploy tools that we've known about for thousands of years, not just a few minutes, you can actually do some really cool stuff and you can get a lot of incredible extra mile performance from your team members. But you've got to have that relationship that we talked about a few minutes ago. You got to spend the time with them to understand who they are and what they're doing. Why do they want to be on your team? Why do you want to have them on your team? But it's really more about, again, that's this heart of it is how do I get this to be your idea? How do I get this to be something you want to participate in and you want to run with me all the way through? How do you get through the suck on your own, let alone get through the suck as part of a team? And I think those are the keys to the leadership stuff that I've been trying to figure out for years and still working on. But with my book a few years ago, I should write this down. I'm getting to the end of my career. Let me write it down so the other guys don't have to work so hard. To figure it out. Just one example I'll share is that for years and years, everybody was talking to me about Maslow's hierarchy of human needs. And I think everybody knows about that. But if I say, but do you know about Manfred Max-Neef's behavioral science approach and why he said Maslow doesn't really work in organizations? Most people that I talk to have never heard of Manfred Max-Neef. He's a Chilean behavioral scientist that back in the 80s said, Maslow doesn't work as soon as you introduce that other person. It's a great model for an individual. But as soon as you introduce the other person, all of a sudden there's a herd dynamic or a team dynamic. And if you don't understand that, you'll never understand why when you give the homeless man at the bridge, at the encampment, a sandwich, he runs up the hill and gives it to another homeless person that he thinks needs a sandwich more than he does. According to Maslow's hierarchy, he can't self-actualize like that. But according to Manfred Max Neef, that's what you would expect because he's part of that team or that tribe, and he's looking out for the whole, not just himself. It's where you get into this. Again, in the military, we spend a lot of time thinking about, I've got to be willing to sacrifice myself for the sake of my team. I've got to be willing to put my ego under the team needs, not above it. And so how do I do that? And in the military, we have processes and procedures, protocols all through basic training, all through leadership training that continues throughout your career, by the way, regardless of your rank, regardless of your rank, because we want leaders at every level. That's what we actually need in corporate America, too. We just don't focus that way. And I think part of that's because we don't have lives on the line. I make the world safe for mortgages today, and that's important, but it's not nearly as important as, oh, I could blow up the city by mistake with this new. Different levels of stress, different levels of responsibility, but it also changes the way you think about outcomes in your particular game. What could you lose, right, if you don't win? What is the loss going to feel like? And maybe you need to walk through that part of the suck too.
1: Let's talk a little bit about your vision for HomeStar. So you're chief digital and information officer. What is your vision based on the overall mission of the organization? Maybe what are some of the key initiatives you guys are focused on right now?
0: Right now, we're really dealing with the meltdown of the mortgage industry over the last year and a half. Just like everybody else, we're trying to figure out how to maintain the levels of capability that we had prior to the Fed jacking the rates up so quickly. And at the same time, remaining an attractive place to recruit into as we continue to expand across the nation. And those are big challenges, not little ones, because you're essentially working without any real budget to try to, and you've got a jettison cost along the way. A lot of stuff that we thought was important a year ago, it turns out was not as important as we thought it was. And so we threw it out. You've got a model that was built for volume kind of during the height of COVID, everybody was doing well in the mortgage industry. And now you've gone from feast to famine. The market's been more than cut in half, reduced by more than half because of those interest rate hikes. And also because there's nothing to sell out there. We've right. got record low inventories of homes to sell. And yet demand is high. Even yeah. in this environment demand is high. So what you're seeing is this amazing marketplace that really does try a lot of people. I think you're seeing every mortgage company out there really trying to figure this thing out. And you're also seeing a lot of mergers and acquisitions. You're seeing some people just abandon the field going, this is too hard. I'm going to go sell insurance. We're going to see, I think, a pretty big change as a result of this market in how we approach the marketplace. When we think about it at Homestar, we think about our real end customers that we get repeat businesses from is our referral partners. Those are the realtors. Those are the builders out there that we're working with. We want to continue to do well to provide data to them about what we're doing for their customers, the buyer. And we do an exceptional job managing those buyer relationships as they move through our pipeline. Not so much because we're all about the borrower experience, we are, but because we want them glowing about their experience with us back to that builder or that realtor. So we get those repeat business items that keep dropping into our funnel. We're also focused on our new CRM, growing the top of the funnel, getting more referral partners, getting more referral business, because now we need more deals to come through To make the same money that we were making during the heyday just a couple of years ago, in order for us to keep our loan officers happy and keep them productive, what we're seeing is you've got to have tools that help you get to a bigger part of the funnel up at the top. And then deal flow wise, because of the margin compression, you need more deals in the hopper than you needed before. And we're also again focused on how can we collect more data from more different parts of the world. How can we use that data? So we've got tools like ThoughtSpot that is, I think, arguably one of the best visualization tools out there. How do you make that data actionable on presentation? Those are the kind of things that I think differentiate us as a company. We've got a great team. We've been together for a while. And obviously, I'm very proud of that, too. So that's where you get the extra mile stop. It's a tough time, David. It's a tough time to be in the mortgage business.
1: It's relevant that it ties back to that, because I can only imagine. I've seen it firsthand. We were ready to buy a place just at towards the tail end of COVID and we kind of dragged our feet a little. And then the real estate in Williamsburg shot back up and the interest rates shot up. So I can only imagine how it is for you guys at trying to sell that. Cause we were like, all right, we're batting down the hatches for a couple of years. We'll just rent. And we're renting out our condo. But anyway, so while well, we're coming up on, on time here, a couple questions left for you. First would be and you kind of touched on this and understanding that you don't have a crystal ball. Where do you see the mortgage industry going in the future? And or what do you think will be some of the biggest changes as time passes?
0: I actually think they're going to be substantial. And there, there's some people in our industry that are really challenged by a scenario like this. You know, hey, well, I can go out online anytime I want to. And I could buy a $300,000 car and have it delivered to my house. I can do that in five minutes, right? As long as I've got the money in the bank and that clears. And when I hit submit, I know I bought the car. How come I can't buy a $300,000 house online in five minutes? And it's that question that's going to change the industry over the next five years. And again, you've got people in our industry that are asking those questions and asking the regulators hey, we've got all this tech that really works. We don't need wet signatures on documents, we don't need you to sign. Two hundred pages at a settlement attorney's office. We can do that all online. We can use DocuSign and e-signature. We can do (laughs) e-notaries. If you regulators would just allow us to use the tech, that's now old, right? We could do all of this immediately. We're bringing out and have been using. I use an AI-enabled automated underwriting system called Candor, built by some more rocket scientists down in the Space Coast of Florida. That is an incredible tool. And what it does is it really helps our underwriters move through the loan file super quick by highlighting elements of risk that really stick out and require the human underwriter to actually do their thing, right? But most of the risk can be managed through an automated underwriting kind of review of that file and the contents of the file. There's two buckets of risk we need to manage. Can the borrower pay? And is the house worth what we're going to loan on it? Those are the two big rust buckets that you got as a lender. And then, is this loan sellable into the secondary market where the investors are buying pools of loans? That's how we cash flow the business. And so that's an important factor, too. I got to make a loan that I can then sell to an investor. Most people don't understand that part of the mortgage business at all. But once you get that, you're like, okay, I got to be on my game here. But so much of this is technologically able to be done right now. In a moment, right? You fill out the application. We verify from the IRS your tax returns. We verify from your employer your pay stubs, right? All of that stuff is available without you having to go get anything and provide it to us. We call that day one certainty, by the way, when you give us permissions to go get the stuff on your behalf. Then we assume that it's all good and you haven't committed any kind of fraud because you didn't provide it to us. We got it directly from the IRS, we got it directly from ADP right so again i can do all of that all of the stuff that i just talked about can happen almost immediately in in nearly real time online so you fill out all the information you give me access to the documents that i need to actually support the application and all of a sudden you're pre-approved for x amount of dollars you're pre-qualified right if you just go ahead and go through this process with us and a little bit more due diligence with extra documentation, right? You can just go like you're writing a check. We'll give you the ability to go write a check for the house that you want. And the other thing is loan programs are important. Because of the environment, you don't need a 20% down payment. There are 1%, 2%, 3% down programs that most people will qualify for. Veterans, you get a no down payment requirement. You get a heavy veterans funding fee, but you don't have to make a down payment. So again, the programs are important for us, just helping our borrowers understand and be educated, empowered and get through that process is a big deal. But I see a massive disruption coming over the next five years. I see us getting to that point where you can apply and get this deal done in a matter of minutes, not days, and certainly not the average that it's taken right now, which is around 45 days from the time that you apply to the time that we close your loan. Homestar is much faster than that, by the way, but that's the average across the industry is about 45 days.
1: Got it. That'll be wild. But you're right. I don't see any reason now that you mentioned it, that shouldn't be able to happen. So super insightful. Well, last question. Unfortunately, we're running out of time here would be if you could go back five or 10 years in time, what advice would you give your younger self?
0: I think the biggest thing is that the focus for me was not so much on patience with others back then. And I think I would have nudged myself to move more in that direction, right? People do the best they can with what they have, where they're at most of the time. If they could do better, they would do better. And I'm like your innovators that you're talking about in the previous example, right? You know, I see it. I got my hands on it. I see it so clearly. Why has everybody else got their heels dug in? And why are they fighting me on this? Why can't they see that this is going to be so much better once we get to the other side? The reality is they can't see it. Because you didn't explain it to them well enough, you haven't painted a picture that's simple enough. You haven't got down to that five-year-old level yet, and it's not because they're five-year-olds and they need to be talked to that way. It's because in order for you to understand how to explain it well enough to them, you have to be able to win with the five-year-old. Those are really key insights that I wish I'd have gotten back then. But the number one thing is just to be more patient with people and not get all balled up when I run into they're just not seeing it. huh?
1: okay hundred percent. I could talk with you for hours, man. It's been such a pleasure having you on. Thank you so much for taking the time.
0: Thanks for having me, David. I've enjoyed sharing with you today
1: and learning from you. I appreciate that too. Thank you. That was a great discourse. And to our listeners, thank you for tuning in. We will catch you all next week. Thank you for listening to the Disruptive Innovators Champions of Digital Business podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a five-star review and subscribe to enjoy future episodes. This episode is brought to you by Disruptive Innovations, a leading tech consulting firm that helps enterprise
0: organizations with their IT strategy, process optimization, and workflow improvement. Contact them and find out more at disruptiveinnovations.net.